let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, while federal Washington was paying attention to the midterms, hometown DC had its own very consequential election on Tuesday. What happened? Washington Post City Hall reporter Michael Bryce Sadler is here to break it down for us. Thursday, November 10th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Hey, Michael, good morning. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm okay. How late were you up on election night? Not as late as I expected to be, honestly. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people were up late watching, like, national election results from the West coast. But meanwhile, there was a comparatively sleepy election in D.C., but still kind of an interesting one. How was turnout here? So in in 2018, we had about 230,000 turnout in the general election. So far this year, we are sitting at about 165,000, but there's still an unknown number of mail ballots and Dropbox ballots to count. So it's unclear what number we're ultimately going to get to. Um, It's looking like maybe we won't reach that 2018 number, but uh, it certainly will rise from where we're at now. Right. So one of the big uh, attention-getting questions on the ballot was the ballot question, which is Initiative 82 that would eliminate the tipped minimum wage, mostly affecting workers in the restaurant industry, the food industry. It passed. Yes. Yes, it did. It passed pretty resoundingly. uh, But compared to the 2018 initiative that asked a similar question, which I think voters approved by a little bit over 50 percent, we're looking at 70 plus for Initiative 82, which shows there's been a change in the mindset around this uh, since that year. So the the history of this is that a very similar measure that would eliminate the tip minimum wage passed in 2018. The D.C. Council then undid that. They, they said, you know, OK, the public may have said this, but we say that, which led to a, a different sort of outcry. What's the point of having ballot initiatives if, if the council can then just undo them? Do you think that that might happen again? I'd say there's almost no chance that happens again based on who has weighed in. So uh, D.C. Council Chair Phil Mendelson, for example, who led the charge on the legislature to repeal this back in 2018, has made pretty clear multiple times now that he would not overturn this. Washington City Paper, to their credit, tried to poll the council on whether they supported this or not and found support, but also some reassurances that there wouldn't be any action to try to turn this around. As you noted, in 2018, a lot of the conversation was it's undemocratic to overturn the will of the voters. So I think there's a different sense and sensitivity around this. And I think when you look at the margin of victory, at least so far, it points to a stronger show of support. So that type of action would be even more confounding this time around. How many people does this affect? So it affects people who are tipped workers in D.C. I do not have a specific number, but 
imagine all the bars and restaurants you might visit in the city in any given week that are available. And there are a lot of people whose lives could potentially change because of this. We got an email from a listener called Bridget K, which said, don't forget that it's also baristas. Yes. So, you know, anybody who receives a tip as part of their wages in D.C. will be impacted by this. And it remains to be seen what the shift will actually look like in terms of tipping culture, how people will adjust their habits or routines in restaurants and bars once this initiative takes effect. And it's worth remembering that it won't be until 2027 that the tipped workers will meet the city's minimum wage. So it's going to be a gradual increase. It's not going to be, you know, tomorrow, these restaurants and and bars, et cetera, need to adjust their pay. It's intended to be a gradual increase to help these businesses be able to implement the change. What is this likely to do for the restaurants? So for restaurants, there seems to be a pretty clear consensus that this would lead to some increase in costs because you're going from having essentially patrons at a business help subsidize while restaurants or or bars are able to pay the base minimum wage for tipped workers, which is just right now just over $5, the businesses would have to make up that entire amount. They wouldn't be able to use tips to subsidize it. So that is a lot more money going toward paying your employees and with tips still on top. So it's going to raise costs almost certainly. I've heard talks of menu price increases, things like that. We've seen a lot of conversations about service charges in restaurants and what those mean. I honestly have no idea what that change is going to look like once it's fully implemented. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in D.C. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow! There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. All right. Another big race on Tuesday was for the at-large council member seats. Um, And because of some weird complications from the primary, it turned out that you had three people who are all currently on the council vying for two at-large seats that were up for election. So Kenyon McDuffie, who's currently a ward council member, has taken Alyssa Silverman's seat. She's out. She's out of the council now. That's a big shakeup. And we'll chat more about that in a second. But first, can you tell me about Anita Bonds? She's the Democrat. She got to keep her at-large spot on the council. Uh, She's had it for nearly a decade. Right. I mean, when it comes to Anita Bonds, there was virtually no doubt because of the D next to her name that she was going to get one of those seats, especially as an incumbent. But I talked to a lot of voters. Many of them aren't like you and me and really paying super close attention to who these individuals are. So I would talk to people who walked out of polling places and ask them about that large race. And they would say, oh, I guess I picked the Democrat. Why would I pick anybody else? 
it, they didn't even realize you could pick two, even though it, it says that on the instructions, this has been a problem in DC. Sometimes people only pick one candidate because they don't know. So the Democrat always has the advantage in that regard because DC is the most liberal city in the United States. And then when you look at the second choice, that's where things really start to get interesting. And as you noted, this situation was set up so that you have three incumbents and two available seats. Someone has to go. And it's looking like, to the surprise of, I'd say, many people who were observing this election, Kenya McDuffie came out on top. So that Anita Bonds, the incumbent who has won, got a lot of flack. She she chairs the Council Committee on Housing, and there's been some like pretty horrible stuff in the Housing Authority. They've really done a lot of criticism of the council for lax oversight, or at least of her for lax oversight. But I think what I'm hearing you say is that that D next to her name and the fact that low information voters are probably not going to be up on the ins and outs of, of Housing Authority oversight means that wasn't going to be a problem for her. Precisely. It, it really didn't show. And the problems you pointed out with the city's housing authority affect the city's public housing. It affects poor residents. It affects people who take advantage of public housing or need public housing in a city where housing is, uh, <laughs> what's the best way to put it, extremely lacking. So the oversight there is crucial. And even though it definitely could have been something that affected her chances, it, it really didn't. So she is like a long-time, long-time fixture of the city political scene. What do you expect from her from this new term she's won? Any sort of difference in her style? Is there anything emerge on the campaign? Well, I would say the renewed focus on housing. I'm very curious to see, at least from a public perspective, how long that sticks past the election. Obviously, it was something that generated a lot of interest as people were thinking, okay, this scathing report comes out like a month and a half ahead of the election. How's it going to impact her? So I think it's going to be the people who care about public housing in the city that are going to continue to pay attention to what she does. And she's made some promises about introducing legislation to help fix the housing authority. She's talked a lot about the money she's helped channel toward the city's public housing stock in her defense. And she has promised to address the issues that were cited in this report. And she's She's talked about it in a very forward-thinking way, and I think now we're going to see her perhaps take action on those fronts where she's promised. Outside of that, I don't see a whole lot of change from her. I think she's played a role as a pragmatic lawmaker who has especially the seniors of the city in mind. She's definitely known for her compassion and care and focus on the city's elderly residents, so I think that's going to remain a focus of her. And I think, as you noted, she's been around for so long that the constituents and the folks that relied on her in the past will continue to rely on her in the same way. So I wouldn't expect a robust change or difference beyond maybe an increased focus on housing, should that continue to be under her purview in the next council session. So that race which generated the most heat was the Silverman and Kenyon McDuffie race. Mm -hmm. The shorthand of it was Silverman is like the kind of the quarterback or the left wing block on the council. McDuffie has a certainly like progressive voting record, but he was not as closely associated with that block. A lot of business money has always flowed to whoever is trying to get Silverman off there. A lot of it wound up flowing to him. What's your read on that race? I had talked to a lot of people about this election in the weeks leading up to it, and there was conventional wisdom, at least, that the incumbents would come out on top. Kenya McDuffie he ran for attorney general. He failed in the sense that he was kicked off the ballot 
Uh, a lot of people viewed that as something that was embarrassing for him and thought maybe he was done. This is someone who's been talked about as a potential mayoral candidate, and that was a huge blow to the m momentum that he had as a lawmaker. So then he makes this pivot, runs for at-large, jumps in as an independent, and he got some criticism early on, including from Alyssa Silverman, that you know this was his second choice or that he was done being a council member. He wanted to be attorney general, so why are you coming back to the council? And what we ended up seeing instead is that he prevailed. Uh, and what the results show is that he has garnered support across all sectors of the city in a way that I think caught a lot of people off guard. And throughout his campaign, there's something he has talked about as being a candidate for all eight wars. And in a lot of ways, it actually showed. Is there any like geographic pattern to where each of these two candidates have their strongest support? So when you look at Alyssa Silverman, she has and, and she will acknowledge that she has struggled at times to reach black voters, particularly east of the river with her messaging. It's never been a strong area for her, whereas Kenny McDuffie is certainly someone who resonates more in those communities and perhaps more familiar to those communities. So it was expected that he would do better perhaps in Ward 7 and 8 like Ward 5, which is his home ward. Whereas Alyssa, you look at more Western parts of the city like Ward 3, Ward 6, Ward 1, and she would maybe appear to have the advantage there or at least would expect to come out on top there. And instead, what we've seen is really close margins in uh, Wards 3 and Ward 6. I actually went back and looked in 2018 and Alyssa did better than Anita Bonds in Ward 3. This time around, she is barely leading Kenya McDuffie. So it's it's very curious and, and interesting how that all played out this time around compared to 2018. And I think there's going to be a lot of analysis to do in the coming days and weeks on why things went the way they did. So there's an irony there that Silverman is most associated with policies that would, you know, take money out of the pocket of, of people who live in the more affluent neighborhoods and would do things like family leave, which, you know, people, a lot, most people in rich neighborhoods work for businesses that have pretty robust family leave. Most of that, the benefit of that came to lower income people. But what I hear you saying is that sort of messaging, cultural familiarity, physical familiarity, just like being around was a bigger deal. Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, race plays a factor as well. You have Kenya McDuffie, who is black, Alyssa Silverman, who is white. Sometimes people who are impacted by progressive policies don't always feel as though the people who are championing those policies necessarily understand what they really need. That's something I've heard, and that's something that's been an undercurrent in D.C. politics for a long time. When you think of the lefty progressive bloc, a lot of times those people who are championing some of those ideas are white, and that raises tension at times in communities that are majority black. How will Silverman's absence affect the council for the next term? Well, you said it. I mean, this is someone who was a progressive stalwart, a reliable vote when it comes to policies and bills that were would be considered progressive. You know, Alyssa's name was reliable. So this is going to be a pretty fundamental shift in terms of the balance. We've had a council that since 2018 has really gotten progressively more liberal, more progressive. And this is a blow to that direction. Right. And we'll I don't think there'll be a lot of tears shed among the leading centrist Democrats like the, the mayor who won her re-election and the city council chairman. 
No, the mayor actually was quite uh, jubilant last night when she left her own election night party to go to Kenyon McDuffie's and to celebrate his win and say how excited she was to be serving with him for years to come. So Kenyon and Anita Bonds had the mayor's support. They were her preferred candidates. They are both more moderate Democrats, certainly. So it's going to be interesting to see that dynamic also with the mayor. But then again, you know, people talk about Kenyon. He is moderate, but at the same time, he has championed a lot of legislation that does help people in the same way that most traditional progressive policies would. You can't just really put him or Alyssa into those straight divisions or, or lines because it's it's really more nuanced than that. Right. And in so, insofar as the city's big political divide is left versus center left, McDuffie has it's not like he's been associated with the 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 centrists who who want to you know beat up on the hippies. Right, right. I mean, people look at him and this is someone who is chair of the business committee on the council and he has their interests in mind. It's it's in part his job at the same time he's been criticized throughout the campaign especially by Alyssa for where his donations are coming from who is contributing to his campaign, the big money spenders or dark money spenders, whereas Alyssa has touted herself as a more grassroots, small dollar, no pox, no anything like that. Yeah, it it is a more nuanced conversation, but oftentimes it shows in those donations in terms of that criticism. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So I got like a big kind of meta question, which is, did we learn anything this election about where influence comes from in D.C.? I mean, it used to be, right, the post, your employer, but the the other side of the uh, opinion editorial wall was this dominant force in getting people elected or unelected in D.C., who they endorsed, had a huge impact. We've obviously had a revolution in media atrophying of a lot of local coverage, not as bad in D.C. as in a lot of places, but still, and declining of all kinds of traditional authorities, whether those are, you know, churches, community leaders, media outfits, etc. This year, I know the Post had three endorsements in competitive races. One was they endorsed the Republican for Ward 3 D.C. council member. He lost. They endorsed Graham McLaughlin, who was a, a fourth candidate for the at-large race. He lost. And they endorsed McDuffie, who won. Whether it's the Post or anyone else, do you get any sense of where the juice is right now in terms of, of you know, how people are learning about who to vote for and, and, and making up their minds? Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question because I still time and time again, even last night talking to voters, heard multiple people say, well, I went with who the Post told me to pick. Mm-hmm. That happens still quite often. And even talking to people who've been around for a while, election observers, analysts, people who have that type of credibility, they'll mention, hey, you know, so-and-so got the post endorsement and that means something. So it still does carry weight. Do I think, obviously the results show that cannot that single-handedly determine an election, but when you look at someone like Kenya McDuffie, does that help his case? I'd argue that the answer is yes, simply based on who I've spoken to about it. Uh, that being said, David Krukoff, who is the Republican candidate in Ward 3, the Post endorsed him and Matt Fruman won quite easily. So outside the newspaper that I work for, you know, I think that it's going to be a little while before we really understand what 
happened that led to this result specifically in the at-large race and who who is being influenced by whom. I think you can look at the mailers and the big money spenders in this election, especially those outside interests that were spamming people's phones with texts about different candidates. Certainly, there is also this intrigue in the at-large race as well with this uh, Office of Campaign Finance situation with Alyssa Silverman that happened at a really unfortunate time, you could say, for her candidacy, where she went and she tried to appeal part of that, basically saying they violated her due process and finding that she violated campaign finance law while polling the Ward 3 race ahead of the June primary. But even then, there were not many voters who came out and actively said the reason I'm voting against Alyssa is because of this very specific thing that happened ahead of the primary. One voter I talked to actually yesterday characterized her probably well. He said, you know, it's, I think the timing was bad and I think it put a cloud over her, but it was pretty technical. At the same time, when you look at everything, it's almost like this perfect storm that, that worked against her. And that OCF complaint, uh, which was filed by another one of her opponents, Kareem Marshall, certainly didn't help her case. So we haven't talked about, speaking of post-endorsees, we haven't talked about the mayor, Muriel Bowser, and that's because it was sort of a foregone conclusion, having won the Democratic primary, that she would win. But now she's going to have a third term, and looking out at the council and how it's changed, Mary Che, the Ward 3 incumbent, retired, is replaced with Matt Fruman, who's considered more left. On the other hand, Silverman falls. She's looking out at the council and thinking about her next four years. What is she thinking right now? Happy thoughts? Sad thoughts? <laughs> well, I think she's very happy that McDuffie is still there. Granted, his seat in Ward 5 is being replaced by someone who is to his left in a lot of ways. However, it balances out almost in the fact that Melissa is being replaced by someone who was more centrist or more moderate. So I have to think that we're going to see the same types of interactions and engagements and tensions that we've been seeing routinely in the past few years over police funding, over the best way to strategize fighting crime and bolstering public safety in the city. When it comes to the city's budget, raising taxes potentially is always something that comes up during the budget cycle. Priorities for housing and homeless services. Um, it's, it's that laundry list of issues in D.C. that come up time and time again, where you see council members at odds at times, and you see that moderate versus progressive divide play out. I think we're going to continue to see that in a lot of ways, in the very same ways that we've been seeing it, thanks to the fact that you kind of have this give and take of the members who are coming and going. Michael, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Yeah, of course, it was my pleasure. I love being on. And before you go, here's some quick news. Our pal Jessica Sidman at Washingtonian put out a great article yesterday about how restaurants are planning to adapt to the new normal now that I-82 has passed. Jessica chatted with several owners. Most of them are considering adding a service charge to offset the increased operating costs. And one of them straight up said he would now never, never open another restaurant in the city. Yikes. In a press conference yesterday, Mayor Bowser said she wants to partner with industry to better educate the public on how things are about to change. Meanwhile, Arlington County is permanently closing its public COVID-19 vaccine clinic next month, and almost all of the testing kiosks are going goodbye. The county stated that demand for the shot has decreased, with focus shifting to flu vaccines. If you still need a COVID vaccine, head to vaccines.gov. And lastly, Revel, the shared moped company, is mopeding its way out of town on November 22nd. The company entered the DMV in 2019. It didn't explain 
why they're leaving. The mopeds will now only be available in New York and San Francisco, which is an expensive ride from here. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about how the elections played out in the suburbs. No, we would not forget you, our Maryland and Virginia friends. And we're also going to chat about all the celebrity rumors around the commander's sale. Tune in for a great chat with Greater Greater Washington Stan Reed and sports journalist Kevin Blackstone. I'm Michael Schaefer from Politico. Talk to you tomorrow. Bye.